Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Sharia-compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Sharia side on our website. Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to Islamic Finance Guru's podcast. I'm incredibly honored and excited about today's podcast episode with the wonderful Dr. Osman Umarji, all the way from the USA, from the Yaqeen Institute. And Dr. Osman is going to be talking to us about a really interesting article that he wrote recently on the psychology of wealth. And your background is really fascinating. I find it interesting how U.S. scholars often have backgrounds like this, where they combine mainstream degrees like, you know, for, for you as electrical engineering. And I think there are some other scholars who've done electrical engineering as well. I think maybe Sheikh Yasser Qadi. But then you go on and you do other stuff um, often, you know, overseas. So in your case, you went to Al-Azhar and then you come back and, you know, mashallah, you've gone into academia on the education side of things, but also at Yaqeen Institute. And, you know, you're, you're doing fantastic work there. I'm really pleased to welcome you onto the podcast and for making the time. Assalamu alaikum. Zakhir for having me. It's such an honor to be here. And so firstly, you know, just to dive off, I'd love to hear about how life is there like in America when it comes to the Muslim scene, you know, what's your day to day look like? And what are the kind of communities out there that you're serving these days? Yeah, so the US is the behemoth, right? It's very hard to talk about it as, as one one entity. I live on the West Coast in Southern California. And there are a lot of regional differences. So Muslims who are on the East Coast are different in terms of their communities, their ethnic composition, their socioeconomic status. The West Coast has a lot of immigrants. We have a large number of Muslims from Southeast Asia, from the Middle East, and a growing number of refugees from even Syria and Somalia. So we're a very diverse group. Uh, Alhamdulillah, within that diverse group, there are a lot of highly educated Muslims. So a lot of physicians, lawyers, businessmen. So we have a lot of wealth in our community. So I think we have a lot of wealth and we all have a lot of refugees. There is just a lot of variation, which actually makes the topic of money very interesting because we have a lot of haves and we have a lot of have nots. And so trying to really have a faith-based approach thinking about money is, is I think, 
it's something you I should say unique, but it's something desperately needed right now for Muslims in the West. Makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, as someone who's on the West Coast, you see, I guess, the real extreme and the real excesses, right? Because this is not just the richest people in America. This is probably the richest people in the world that we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. I happen to live near the coast, right, in Orange County. And we have communities about five, 10 miles where we live, where the average house price is going to be between five and $15 million. Um, you know, most of the wealthy people in America probably have homes on the coast in California. And of course, we have a real estate crisis like everyone else. So it's uh... absolutely crazy. For, like, look for us in the UK, we're, you know, obviously a technology company or a technology startup in some ways, and we hire engineers. So I always get very happy when I see San Francisco prices going through the roof because it means, you know, engineers are actually looking elsewhere. So uh, at least we can compete on that one thing. Now you can better understand why a lot of our, at least South Asian Desi parents wanted us to be engineers. Right. They found it as a very stable career. And alhamdulillah, we have Muslims at all over the place, filled at Google, at Apple, at Facebook, at Twitter, all these big tech startups. They're actually full of Muslims. They actually mostly have their own jamaahs there because of such a large group of Muslims. Sometimes in the hundreds, easily they can get for a jamaah prayer. So, uh, yes, there definitely is a lot of wealth and stability in those careers uh, and Muslims are attracted to them. Alhamdulillah. So, Dr. Usman, how did it germination of this piece come about and what led you to doing this piece and how also I'll be interested to hear how you approach the research for this piece as well both from a I guess an academic perspective but also I guess you know practically I mean I presume you had to speak to a lot of people as well how did that whole thing work yeah it's probably been cooking for many years so it wasn't like hey I was sitting down one day and said I'm gonna write this paper and I just started there's a cultural component to this so one of the things I mentioned is that I've grown up here and I've seen two different ways that I generally find Muslims thinking about money. One is they absorb the typical capitalist, materialist mindset, which is I'm here to make as much money as I can so I can enjoy my life. And I actually heard Muslims say this point blank to me. And I've been an imam in the community prior to my work at Yaqeen and in academia. And I would hear things like, well, as long as I make my money halal, I can use it however I want to buy my nice clothes, buy my nice cars, and just to live the way I want to live. And to the extent that there was brothers who I'd know who were making a substantial amount of money who actually didn't save a penny. And it was almost absurd that you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and literally live check to check because you're living so comfortably. And then you had the opposite I saw. I saw people who were, Allah had blessed them, but they lived like they were completely poor. They would never spend a penny. It would hurt them to ever give a dollar in charity or even to go a dollar for their family. So I said, something's not right. We have these two extremes. Neither is right. You know, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And I wanted to actually get deeper into it to provide not the typical just, hey, you know, Islam is not against money, you know, to just be careful about it. But really then try to see where does this come from? Where do we get these ideas in the first place that my money is my money, I can use it how I want to use it. And then the idea that just kind of the principles that I thought were lost, kind of the idea that Allah blesses our wealth, that there actually are Islamically guided principles about how we spend and acquire our wealth. A tangent to this is I think what really got me into this was zakat as a topic. Because as an imam, over the last decade, I've been studying zakat day in and day out. I give zakat seminars everywhere. And almost all the questions I get are about, you know, we have tax evasion people who love to evade taxes. There are a lot of Muslims who are trying to evade zakat by saying, but what about this and what about that? And I noticed the heart, the attitude towards money was just something wasn't right with it, which led to the desire to kind of find all the loopholes. That was, I think, the big motivator to say, let's just sit down, think this through, let's bring you know, my background is in the social sciences and psychology. What do we know about how psychology thinks about these topics and then merge it with what our traditional scholars say about wealth? 
No, I think that's an amazing idea, and I think it's so needed. And you're right. I guess though, you know, Islam is like a timeless religion, right? Where even at the Prophet's time, I guess there were similar situations. And I guess it, you know, we can learn those same lessons. Obviously, in a in a very different situation, but actually at heart, they're the same lessons. And I was thinking about the verse when you were talking about uh, in uh, Surah Al-Quran, وَالَّذِينَ إِذَا أَنْفَقُوا لَمْ يُسْرِفُوا وَلَمْ يَقْتُرُوا Those who, when they spend, they don't go to the two extremes uh-huh. and they're in the middle. So uh, you'd written this, you know, written this, this article and one of the interesting themes, I guess, to dive into, you know, the article itself was around contrasting these neoclassical kind of ideas around economics, modern day economics, and then contrasting that with Islamic economics. And I was, it made me think when I was reading that article, because I, you know, I was trying to work out, okay, why are we talking about this in the first place? Why is this the thing that you started with? And I'd love to hear your thoughts around that, because obviously I, I've been having my thoughts, but I wanted to hear you from the horse's yeah. mouth. Okay. Yeah. And that was actually very important to me. It was, a, it was the central idea because I deeply believe that Muslims and all human beings, we are a product of our culture. Right? Oftentimes we think that we're a product of simply our education system, what we've formally read in books or anything else, but where the air that we breathe is our culture. And the culture of Muslims all over the world, especially in the West, is capitalism. Right? Materialism and capitalism are the underpinnings of how we think about money in this world. We're taught that from literally infancy all the way into adulthood. And that reflects even some of the career choices that we make. Right? Why do our parents want us to be in certain fields over others? And it's not all bad. I don't want to say that. But again, just to go back to saying there is something deep within us that we have absorbed, whether it's conscious or subconsciously. And let's begin to actually acknowledge what that is, because if the foundation is not Islamic, it's something else. And if that something else is not congruent with Islam, we've got to unpack it and we've got to be very critical of it. So neoclassical economics is what we're all trained with unknowingly. It is the parallel or the the underpinnings of capitalism to say, right? So if we can't understand that, acknowledge it being as un-Islamic, there's no footing essentially, right? This is why you get all those questions when people come to evade zakah and all the other behaviors I don't think are befitting of a Muslim, the question is why? And it goes back to those fundamental beliefs that they have absorbed that my money is my money, right? I'm allowed to optimize my own happiness. I'm allowed to be as selfish as I want to be. And when you tell them this is where it came from, it's kind of a shock. Wait a minute. I didn't realize I was being programmed in this way. So that's why I had to start it with that way and kind of hit the hammer over the head until I felt that we have sufficiently said this is not allowed to think this way. Let's now build a new foundation. Makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, so the way I was thinking about it was ultimately there's a motivating factor as well for when you're making any decision, but also any investment or money decision. And if you take out the, in economics, is this like, you know, in part the study of human desire and you're trying to come up with a metric that you're trying to maximize and i guess you know that first section of the article is about saying look if you understand that this is what's going on then the metric of your average american or average you know non-muslim capitalist ultimately is going to be some kind of hedonistic thing where you know you're trying to maximize pleasure whether whether that is you know through fame or wealth or you know luxury or some kind of higher order manifestation of that pleasure or not and the or not is you know something else and that's where you know the islamic aspect kicks in i'd love to hear your thoughts around that you know about as a muslim what is it that should make us tick 
when it comes to our financial lives. Let's take that statement that you came up with, this idea that the whole philosophy of, of neoliberal economics or neoclassical economics is the human being is attempting to maximize their happiness. And so that, like you said, at the core of it is hedonism. Right? I get to do what I want to do. It's a very liberal framework of autonomy. And I wanted to start there and say, look, this is something that is not tenable for a Muslim. Like our aqidah, our belief system says that our life is not about maximizing our happiness without any boundaries. And so I tried to reframe that by saying, let's assume that we'll just use part of that statement. Okay, fine. So we're, our goal in life is to optimize. And instead of saying our happiness, right, or our pleasure, it should be the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And once you have that shift in what you're trying to accomplish in your life, that comes with now a whole new set of assumptions. Because for me, I can say, well, what makes me happy today is buying this and doing that and going here and all that stuff. And now it becomes, well, now I'm in a position of being subservient to somebody else. What is it that Allah would like me to do in this moment? He'd like me to be here. He'd like me to be there. He'd like me to do this, would not like me to do that. He'd like me to spend on these groups, not to spend on these groups. And so that to me is actually world changing in terms of the paradigm one comes to see their own wealth. So that's where I'd like to begin. And with that, step by step by step, we now realize, well, what is it Allah wants me to do? Or what does he want me to think, first of all? Because it is thoughts. You said motivation. Motivation is a key word here. Actions are inimal a'malu bin niyat, right? We can start with there, right? And actions are by their intentions. So before we even get into the behavior of a Muslim, I want to get into their mindset and their motivation and their drives. And so that really, this is why we wrote a paper on the psychology of wealth. And we didn't write about Muslim economic behavior. Right? Because the same thing goes back to this. People say, okay, you got to pay zakah. I know I got to pay it, but I don't want to pay it. I know I got to give sadaqah. I don't want to give it. So it's something in here that we need to start with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a trend, you know, that I think is in, probably increasing in our generation. I think our parents and, you know, all the generations, I think are a lot more charitable. So perhaps, you know, there, there's something about, you know, the purity of the spirit there. I wanted to dig in a little bit more about, you talked about, investment lessons that you know we can learn or and how we can apply that to our lives i'd love to hear that you know both from i guess from an investment perspective but also from a charitable perspective my philosophy on on this stuff is that charity really is just the other side of investment um Mm -hmm. it's just another way of deploying capital and one way you expect it to come back to you you know in this life the other one you expect to come back to you in the afterlife but yeah i'd I'd love to hear you know the lessons that you drew out from the article Sure. I'll start with the statement of Omar, that to me was, was very profound the first time I read it years ago, when he said, invest the wealth of an orphan so it's not consumed or eaten by zakah. It's deep and it could be dangerous if misunderstood. Because we have this idea that sometimes we're told, don't think about money, right? Think about Allah only. Think about the akhirah only and think about your salah and your dhikr and all these other individual good deeds. And Omar ibn Khattab here is telling us that's not right. We're not supposed to just be oblivious to wealth. He said, actually, the orphan, which in this case, he meant any young child in this case, right? Anybody who doesn't have control over their wealth, if that money just sits around idly. So for any Muslim now, whether it's me or you or anyone else who's got money sitting in a, an account under their mattress, you know, in a checking account, every day that money is losing its value. And we can talk about inflation and all kinds of other reasons. But his example was zakah. And you'd say zakah is a strange example to use because we don't believe when we give sadaqah, we lose our money in both it's more complicated than that, right? Because we believe in the idea of barakah. We believe that Allah will give, that we have the hadith of the Prophet that, you know, wealth does not decrease by charity, right? So give charity. So why would Omar say this? Because Omar understood, even though there is barakah, even though there's blessings 
in charity, we still don't cover our eyes to kind of the basic economic and financial numbers that are taking place. So in this case, you give $10,000 of zakah you have in your pocket today and you give two and a half percent, right? You've lost a little bit of money. Yes, there's barakah in your life and Allah blesses your life in some ways, but year by year by year, that 10,000 diminishes until a decade later, you're below 8,000. So you've lost over 20% in a decade. So Omar is saying, don't be like that. So here we have a clear idea that investing matters in Islam. So we take our money and we try to make it grow in halal ways, which then, you know, you're the expert when it comes to, you know, a lot of the traditional investment things people do, right? So people put their money into all these different investment vehicles for their dunya. They do it for their retirement, right? They do it for their own comfort, right? And we think, and we think, and we think, and we have experts everywhere when it comes to how to optimize dunyawi transactions. But what we don't have, which the Quran gives so much attention to, is thinking about investing in your akhirah, right? And we use the word investing, right? Because like you said, it really is an investment. So the principles that I had tried to pull out was to number one is to say, well, Muslims need to think as obsessively about their retirement portfolio, the way they think about that. In the US, we have 401ks with a specific type of retirement account and, and IRAs and all kinds of other opportunities. And then we put our money in mutual funds. What about for your akhirah? Have you systematically thought about and I think the problem here is that most Muslims don't do things systematic. What we do is we go to the masjid on a Friday and the khatib says, please be charitable. We'll take out a $5 or a five pound note and say, here you go. That's not systematic. That's actually a very emotional, random act of giving. But you wouldn't do that for your retirement. No one would say, today, I'm in the mood to put $5 in my retirement account, right? That's absurd. First of all, we know that there are principles that optimize your wealth. Invest early, you diversify, right? You take some calculated risk, right? There's all these things we do. So I wanted to bake that into the Akhirah investment portfolio using prophetic guidance. So a couple of things. So number one is the idea of diversification. Why? You mentioned something earlier. Our parents were very philanthropic in certain ways. The world is changing rapidly. The idea that the Islamic institution is only the masjid or the only opportunity to invest in Islam in the masjid is no longer accurate. So should we only put money into the masjid? No, but we can't obviously ignore the masjid either. There are all kinds of good Islamic startups. There are Islamic media companies. There are schools, right? There are all kinds of online educational resources. There's seminaries. I mean, you name it, there are dozens and dozens of types of high quality Islamic organizations that all deserve our wealth. So to begin as a Muslim to say, look, I got to put money in each of these because I want to get the return on investment for every single one. And I make the analog. If you invest in Apple, in Tesla, in all these big tech stocks early on, and you diversify th throughout industries, at some point, you're gonna win. Even if this company doesn't do well and that organization, so people say this a lot, well, I don't wanna invest in that organization, it's still a baby. And the Prophet addressed this and the Allah addresses in the Quran when he said in Surah Al-Hadid, min min He said, do not equate those who spent their money for the sake of Allah and Islam in the days before the opening of Mecca, when Islam was an empire, essentially, right? Before it became an empire, right? Once Islam was an empire and it ruled the, the Arabian Peninsula, the sadaqah that's given is actually worth far less because it wasn't given at a time of the essential need, right? You weren't an early investor, essentially, in the Islamic state. So I want us to think about being an early investor while Islam right now in the West is in its infancy. We're, what, a couple generations in. Our institutions are very, very basic. Right? They're not well-developed. We don't have billion-dollar endowments like non-Muslims have in their, in their organizations. And I really want us to think that, look, that risky investment that you put in today is worth 
dozens and hundreds or thousands of times more on the side of Allah than if our great grandkids did it in a hundred years when inshallah they're they're thriving. So these are some of the principles I wanted to go through, like invest early. So Muslims who are in their 20s, we're not, often we're told, Dean, wait till you're older, right? You know, we hear these things all the time. People say, oh, I'll pray when I'm older. I'll give sadaqah when I'm older. No, you got to start early. Just like for your retirement, you start early. You start investing for your akhirah early. Number two, you diversify. Get the khair of all the different good that's out there. Number three, take those risks. When other people might have cold feet and not want to put money in because they're waiting for it to succeed, that's when you go in. That's when you maximize your return. So these were some of the ideas that I wanted to, to really focus on. And maybe we can talk about Baraka maybe later on. Yeah, absolutely. No, really, really, really fascinating. And I completely agree with you on this. I also think that keeping with the investment theory applied to charity mindset, I think there's also something around impact as well. And, you know, I guess that is covered in part by the, you know, the taking risks point, because, you know, often I feel like we, when we give charity, we're motivated more by our own satisfaction and what makes us kind of feel happy as opposed to what's actually needed. You know, we actually do a lot of work with charities at IFG because of um, some wills partnerships that we do. So we do lots of, you know, conversations with the leaders of charities. And one of the big bugbears they have is that charity seems to be only like two times a year, you know, around mm-hmm. Ramadan or around Qurbani. And people want to really give their zakat in Ramadan. And then after that, and they want to give it for certain things, you know, wells and whatever it is. And everything else is not so relevant. Yeah. I think, alhamdulillah, the situation is a little bit better in America. At least that's my sense of it. You've got your Keen Institute, for heaven's sake. You've got, you know, the Muslim Legal Fund of America. You've got care i think it is that does like islamophobia stuff so you've got a few different organizations that are you know the classic well digging organization but yeah i'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well and you know your experience of it yeah so alhamdulillah we are i think making big strides in the u.s with understanding that the need to give to organizations goes beyond the traditional stuff that's out there however i think even that being said it's still a drop in the ocean so we still give most of our there are numbers that are coming out, but in terms of generation status, right, the elders are likely giving to more of the traditional issues, whereas the, I think the younger generation are beginning to diversify a little bit. The question that comes up in my head that you hit the nail on the head on is why are we having this individualistic behavior? It's part of the culture. We are raised in an individualistic culture. We choose everything. We choose what we eat every day. We choose where we go. We choose how we dress, right? We choose everything. And so this is a dangerous, actually, approach to thinking about charity is I get to choose where every dollar goes. And if I'm in the mood and if that organization is making me happy, I will give to them. Now, just think about if taxes were used this way, right? I know I don't really ride bikes. I don't want to have a bike lane, right? I don't want to pay for the bike lane, right? I don't want to pay for trash pickup because I actually, you know, I don't pull it, whatever it might be. No, no, there's things that the society absolutely has to have, whether you and I need it or not. Schools, taxes are used for schools. Even those who don't have children or anything, they still pay taxes for schools. So the mindset has to change from what you just said. It's what is needed in order for the ummah to be safe, not for me to be safe and happy. And so they call this the warm glow effect in in, in charity where people give charity to make themselves feel good. It's not about that, right? It's really about saying, okay, like I'm actually going to give to places that I actually don't even have anything to do with. That actually shows ikhlas. That means it's not a transaction for me. Oh Allah, I love that this organization does these wonderful lectures. I'm going to give them money because I enjoy the lectures. No, Allah, I'm giving this money because the ummah needs this and it has nothing to do with me. 
these orphans, you know, that institute, you know, that program, it's out of state, it has nothing to do with me, but it's needed for the survival of the state. And once we think like an ummah, things will begin to change. Really, and this, this idea that we think globally, right, and even you can act locally is fine. I, I mean, I like that idea, but these national organizations, like you mentioned, they do work that protects the well-being of Muslims all over the country. And if I don't invest in them today, when I need them tomorrow, they're not going to be there, right? So if you don't have kids, you better start investing in Islamic schools, right? I mean, I have kids who are, you know, from one to 11, right? And I'm just thinking about, man, like, when are they going to have solutions for children? You know, and tomorrow my kids are all going to be grown up. So if I start today with investing in them, right? Yes, that's personal, but it's also for the next generation of, of, the, of the youth. So I think getting out of this individualistic mindset is very, very important. And diversifying helps that, right? And we do it again in our investments. I'm a tech guy, you're a tech guy. Like I know the tech industry well, but I'm not gonna put all my money in tech. I'm gonna put it in other things that are safe and stable and needed because even though it's really not my thing, I know that my wealth needs to be safeguarded and growth because society uses all that. So when you sit down and you create a portfolio with all these different things, it allows you to check yourself. And say, you know what, the masjid, it's just a part of my life. It's part of my community. Whether I go or not, it's getting some of my wealth every single month, right? The school, right? This nonprofit, right? This media company, whatever it is. I'm not going to do it when I feel good. It's just automatically deducted every single month. I'm putting it in. It grows. It doesn't grow. Like whatever happens, it's by my niya. And I think if that attitude, if we remove the desire to be happy with it, I think that will make for a much better investor and a savvier investor, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I also wanted to actually pick your brains as one of the few people in the world who've really thought about this. My thinking around investment, and you know, obviously that's what we do, right? A lot of the time, is that we should be using our investment money in a much more purposive way as well, because you know, it's one thing to invest in a cryptocurrency or trade on a stock like Tesla buy and sell it and, you know, make a great return. And it's quite another to make the same return, but doing something by investing in stuff that the Muslim community needs from an investment perspective. And I guess what I'm talking about is things like, you know, Sharia compliant business financing or startup or equity or equity investing in companies and thinking about one's investment more broadly from an impact perspective mm-hmm. uh, because th- that's actually really what you know why i get really passionate about what we do ifg because like, I, I feel like you know in 5 10 15 years like out right now out of the 100 top companies global companies in the world there's only one from a muslim origin country and that's aramco right yeah. that's like that's like oil so and we should at least be like 25 if we're like you know pro rata we should be 25 so I guess, you know, I'm probably not articulating a particularly uh, good question here, but, you know, there's a complex of ideas here and I'd love your thoughts on them. Yeah. Yeah. You remind me of what you're saying, the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, which is the foundation for investing. When he said it's, it's guidance for investing, when he said a time will come when people are not concerned with how they get money, halal or haram. And this is a prophecy, right? It's literally, he is a prophet and he prophesies, this is what the future would look like. And we are living in that time today. You mentioned it, right? whether it's crypto, whether it's this company that pollutes the world, as long as it makes money, that's all I care about. This is sadly how most people in the world invest, which is why you have created and other folks have said, look, there's something as Sharia compliant investments, right? It's, it is such a fundamentally important idea in order to get the reward that we're seeking in the first place, 
right? Someone can go and invest in all the wrong things, make a whole lot of money. And that actually has no barakah for them in this life or the next life. Allah will not be pleased with that investment. So the first thing is that just the Muslim needs to be extremely cautious. It's funny because we have this, maybe I'll use the word obsession. Some, some listeners may not like it, but with halal meat, right? By all means, like, you know, I, I'm an advocate of eating the biha and eating halal and eating this stuff. But sometimes we like, that's the only thing that some people care about. It's like, they'll do their due diligence that a hundred times to make sure every ingredient they put in their mouth and meets the strict criteria of halal, which is great. But why is it when it comes to money, those same people, they have no concern where their money comes from. And this is actually is so fundamentally important. And is there's a hadith that talk about this. How does Allah respond to the dua even of someone whose wealth comes from haram? So number one is the Muslim should obsess over the investment being halal. That can't be stated enough. Number two, you mentioned this, like the idea of impact, that it's a little bit hypocritical for uh, any wealthy person in the world, Muslim or not, to complain about the global crisis we're facing with global warming, you know, with all the oppression and all the scarcity of resources that's being created when you're investing in the companies that are actually doing it and causing it. And that's where we have to have an honest look into our own heart and say, Allah, is my financial behavior congruent, right, with what the ethics of my faith say? And that's a hard conversation because there's so many times where you will actually miss out on something that you think would have been this boom for you. It would have been very lucrative for you, but because it didn't meet your ethical standards. But that's where we have to go back to our belief system that Allah blesses our wealth in ways that we cannot imagine. And I know it's a hard concept for many people because they look only at the hard dollars and cents or pounds, right? That the $100 I've made has the value of, has a purchasing power of $100 of products. From a Muslim perspective, we don't think that way. The barakah is what gives something value or not value. And if the halal or pound has barakah, the purchasing power is way more. And if it's haram, it has way less potential to do something with. So, and we see it, if you actually stop and you reflect over your own life, you look at some people. I, I've actually seen people who have objectively low incomes, whose wealth goes extremely far and Allah blesses it in all kinds of ways. And I've seen people with a lot of money who it seems like their money goes almost nowhere. And there's so many hadith about this as well, where the Prophet said that food for one should be enough for two, right? Two for four, right? Four for eight and numerous narrations. And even that I like the hadith that's in Mu'tab, Imam Malik, where and it's foundational where the Prophet said that the buyer and the seller, they have a choice. And to cut to the chase, right, he said that if they're honest in their transaction, right, then Allah will bless their wealth. And if they're hiding any, anything and if they're lying about it, Allah strips it of their wealth. And that's something we have to just internalize deeply. That that dollar I invest, if it's a halal investment, it can go very far in this life and the next. And if it's a haram investment, it's not going to go far in this life and the next. So maybe that's kind of how I try to at least tell people who are worried about missing out on all the golden opportunities that Allah has something better in store for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was actually reflecting just now, I was looking at my setup and I was like, as a Microsoft laptop or on a Microsoft system, you know, I've got Outlook and Zoom open. I'm using a HP screen and, you know, I've got this like WhatsApp tab open which is Facebook. And I was thinking, and I've also got Yakin Institute open. And all of these companies pretty much are from the same location or organizations <laughs> are from the same location. We definitely need more tabs, a bit like the Yaqeen Institute, that people are logging into or using on a daily basis and are having a real impact on the way that we, you know, we think and we behave. Um, uh, Dr. Osman, I wanted to ask you, you know, one uh, final question, and that was around the whole Baraka aspect. 
uh, that you mentioned. And you know, there was a verse in the Quran, uh, Surah Nuh, where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala He says, uh, uh, Nuh alayhi and I mean, and I've always thought that's fascinating how, you know, there's this like istighfar. And then after that, there's all this like plenty that comes. And I know you talked about barakah. It's this very hard concept to like, you know, put into, you know, words. But I'd love, to, you know, for you to share with, with our listeners and with me, you know, how can we increase the barakah in our wealth and in our lives? And there's so many other stories that maybe we can use. I think stories capture the essence of barakah better than any definition would, right? And at the core of it, I think it gets to just taking, understanding that our good deeds that seem to be unrelated to our risk directly influence our risk. And I'll give you some examples of that. So one, we have the story in Surah Al-Kahf, right, about Musa and Khidr. And I think it's such a powerful story when Musa and, and uh, when Khidr put the wall straight up that was about to collapse and Musa was like why are you doing this the, the, the reasoning is beautiful when Khidr explained to him that look the people who owned that wall happened to be two orphans and underneath it was a treasure that was for them and their father was righteous right through the righteousness of the mother and father their children were blessed in their wealth right and Allah found a means of preserving their wealth um, even the other examples that are given right you look at Umar ibn Aziz right or Umar ibn Khattab right when he married his son to that one sister, the poor sister who didn't want to mix the water with the milk. So the story is that Omar is making his rounds uh, as he's a Khalifa, right? He sees, he overhears a conversation between a mom and a daughter in the backyard. The mom said, why don't you mix some water into the milk so we can make more money? The daughter refused to because that's haram. And when Omar heard this, he went home and told his sons like, there's an amazing young girl that one of you need to marry. And so one of his sons did and their grandson ended up being Omar Abdul Aziz. And that's risk and that's barakah in doing what's ethically right. And so you might say, what's the connection to all this? This is like a generation, two generations later, three generations. But that's essentially why we do what we do in the first place, right? I mean, why do we all leave money for our kids? We want them to live a better life, right? We want each generation to live a better life. We want them to get married to righteous people. We want Allah to protect them from sickness, right? We want Allah to protect them from all the diseases and evil things of this world. So for me, like the idea of, just being upright and honest in every aspect of your life, giving Allah his rights, right? giving the servants their rights, manifest not only in getting the pleasure of Allah in the afterlife and getting paradise, but in securing your dunya and the dunya of those you love. Because Allah protects his beloved, right? He takes care of the anbiya despite the fact he took them through all these trials, right? He protects them so their mission is complete. So I want all of us to realize that. That Allah, if I want my kids to be successful in this life, I want their iman to be safeguarded, right? I want their wealth to be safeguarded. It starts with me doing what's right every single day. And I will leave this life one day, and I have no idea how, but inshallah, my progeny who are a part of this ummah, Allah will protect them in a way that leads to things I would never would have imagined. And you will get the sadaqah jariah for that. And I think that's something we all have to realize. Even if I die in 100 years later, you know, someone from my family or my community or something I've invested in does something great. I'm the beneficiary of that, which is actually why when I think about why did the prophet tell us that we'll never be able to get, like future generations can never get the reward of the Sahaba. Even if you pray more and give more sadaqah and you do more, because, because they laid the seed, they get the reward for every single fruit that's being done. So I want to be that person and I want that lays those seeds so that the fruit that comes out well after I die 
right? It is sweet and it is producing. And through my bir and my righteousness to Allah, that's the best mechanism I can do to guarantee this. It's not through, well, if I cut corners and I know this is a shady investment, but the dunyawi consequences are so great, I'll make a million dollars and I'll give it for Sadaqa. That's the wrong mindset completely, right? So. Absolutely. No, Jazakallah khair, Dr. Usman, for that. And that's probably a great note to end you know, our podcast. I, I pray that Allah SWT makes us amongst those people who plant those seeds everywhere. And the and I'm sure some of them will flop, but you know, inshallah, some of them will uh, will succeed massively. Yeah, once again, really appreciate you making the time to come onto the, the podcast. And uh, inshallah, yeah, let's keep this you know a live thing. And I'd love to get you know you and other members of Yaqeen Institute on relevant topics to what we do uh, on regularly because I, I think it's uh, it's you know it's a message that's universal. It shouldn't just be kept to America. It should be a global message. Um, so just have a look at once again. Well, Yaakov, it was my pleasure to be here. May Allah bless all the good work that you do and bless the wealth of the Ummah. Allow us to do that, which is pleasing to Allah. And uh, by that, inshallah, we get success in this life and the next. Ameen. Ameen. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.